Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, your host for Everything Cooperative. You know, and today, for this whole year, the National Cooperative Business Association, CLUSA, is celebrating their 100th anniversary. They were started in 1916. And today we're going to have Mr. Bob King on. Bob, good morning. How are you doing? Great, Vernon. How are you? Fantastic. The only problem this morning, Bob, uh, the snow caused me, it took me an hour and five minutes to get here where it's normally a 35-minute ride, but I just wow. made it into the studio. Lots <laughs> of traffic still out there, the snow, snow problem. But, you know, I went back, Bob, and looked uh, at bread in 1916 cost five cents at the beginning of the year. Amazing. And it went up to 7% by se- September. And I, when I first looked at that, I'm going five to seven. That's not that much. But that was a 40% increase. Right, right. And that was a huge wow. amount for just the cost of bread. A movie ticket was $0.07, cents, a home was $6,187, and a Ford cost $300. And it was <laughs> down from 1910. In 1910, a Ford was $700, a Model T, and it went down to $300 because of the assembly line. And I thought that was really interesting that because you were with the UAW, you the United Auto Workers, Ford, and which Bob just said it straight. That I worked for Ford for nine months in 1966. <laughs> and I was in the UAW, and they were really, really great. But in, in 1916, the average worker made 16 cents an hour. And that went up in 1938 to $0.25 cents an hour, the first time we had minimum wage. Wow. History. So yeah. what's the history of unions? I mean, how did they come about, and why did they come about, and and how did you get involved? Well, I think it's really interesting to go back to the Ford example, because really Ford, I come out of the Rouge Complex in Michigan where where which is where Henry Ford first started out in Highland Park, Michigan, and then moved to Dearborn, Michigan, with this major industrial complex. So he made everything for the vehicle. He made rubber for wheels. He made steel. He made glass. He made everything. It was a self-contained operation in the Rouge. And he was a brilliant man, and the assembly line, as you said, reduced by more than half the cost of the vehicle. But employees were treated terribly. Uh, most employees had to pay a bribe to even get hired in there. Uh, conditions were horrendous. People would pass out on the line. If people wanted to go to the restroom, a security guard would go with them. There were no stalls. There was no dignity. Yeah, they couldn't flush the toilet until they made sure that they'd really done something. They weren't just trying to get a break. They sent security guards out to people's homes, and if they didn't like the way your spouse uh, maintain your home. They would fire you for that. I mean, oh so God. workers finally said, hey, enough is enough, and said, we have to have our organization. We have to have our voice. So they formed the UAW, 
and began the process of collective bargaining, which is what then the UAW, the steelworkers, the Teamsters, the machinists, other unions, through collective bargaining, really created the middle class in America. But, you know, there was an old thing that I learned in high school that I think is, you know, an absolute truth, and that is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so in society, what Worker Clopper is about, what the labor movement is about, is about giving workers a voice and some balance of power inside corporations to make sure that workers share in the success of the corporation. We want workers to take responsibility for quality, for productivity, but we also want them to share in the success of the companies. So was it UAW forming about 1936, is my research? Right, 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 right. I think my home local charter was 19, I think, 34, but, okay. um, which is local 600, which is a local that represents Ford and Rouge. So are you from Detroit? I am. I'm born and raised. Most of my, my dad worked actually in, in salary in Ford, and so we moved around to Canton, Ohio, and Chicago, and then back to Detroit. But I was born and most of my life raised in Detroit. Well, I left Bluefield, West Virginia, my home, went to Kentucky State. Kentucky State didn't have money for scholarships. I've supposed to have been on football scholarships. So I went there in 65, left there in January of 66, and went to Detroit because work was good in Detroit. Right. Worked right. for a month or so in the sheet metal company, and then there was an explosion. So I left there and went to Ford and worked on the assembly line and got some really great knowledge. One knowledge was I didn't want to do that kind of work the rest of my life. And the guys on the line really supported me to go back to college. Matter of fact, they almost wanted to push me out to make sure that I got back to college. But what's interesting to me too, uh, Tom, was that on the line that I was on, it was all blacks and the uh, supervisor was white. Oh, wow. Were you in the assembly plant or were you in the foundry or where were you? I started in the foundry. Yeah. Uh, and then I got bumped over to the assembly line. Okay. And that bumping to the assembly line was great because I think I would have stayed in the foundry, foundry that was real easy money. I mean, it was real easy work, and there was a, a bonus structure in there. But on that assembly line, I got bored. I, I learned every job just to keep momentum and moving. But one day the supervisor and I had a out. We had crossed paths, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they wrote me up as a troublemaker but I had told him I would learn every job and do it. And if I ever needed help, I wanted him to help me. Well, this particular day, I was feeling bad, and he gave me the hardest job on the line, which I wasn't qualified to do. And so I just started messing up, and they were going to fire me. But the line, they all quit. They set out. Told them wow. they were not going to fire me, and they brought me back. But it, was just, it would seem like it was a labor versus uh, management versus labor, and it also felt white versus black. Early on in, in the 60s, it was, like I said, it was 66. But I yeah, really that, enjoyed that, the union. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the culture of solidarity is pretty amazing in the auto plant. I had the same experience when I went in there. People really encouraged me to continue my education and were very, very supportive. And, they, you know, somebody, one of the older workers took you under his wing or a group of them would and invite you to have lunch with them. It was, it was, it, it, and that culture still exists. In many ways. They also took me to their homes and fed me dinner. Uh, it, oh, that was great. amazing. And some of those houses, I was just in Detroit. My brother ended up going there and spending his whole adult life there. And his, I went there or from Christmas to New Year's and visit my uh, uh, nieces and nephews. And it was amazing the houses that you would have 
died for in 66, right. Right. boarded up and abandoned uh, yep. the houses that they took me to. I keep talking about the middle class moving from, because a lot of them came from up south, from down south, right. <laughs> and would come in and then get these fine homes and move into the middle class and have education and and most all of them, all of them that took me in their homes, wife and children, and they were family people. So uh, they took me under the wings. I was all of eighteen, right. uh, and I thought I was grown, of course, at eighteen. But <laughs> <laughs> we all did. Yeah. So how how did you move up to become president of the UAW? What was that like? Well, um, I, get, I got out of the army and needed to find work. I wanted to get married and support a family, so I got a was lucky and got hired in at Ford, and then I wanted to get back into school. I completed my bachelor's degree before I went before I got drafted to go in, into the army during Vietnam. Um, I was lucky I went to Korea instead of Vietnam, but it was during that period of time. And so when I came out, I was just planning to work for a short period of time to earn some money. Mm-hmm. And then as I was working, you know, in in the facilities, people had problems. You know, if this if a supervisor wasn't fair with them or something, I don't think it's my natural inclination to join in and try to help. And so I became pretty active. And then um, workers asked me to run for different, uh, my fellow workers asked me to run for different positions. I ran for a part-time courting secretary position, and then I ran for district committee, and then gradually moved up the ladder from district to bargaining to vice president of a unit of about 4,000 members, and then president of that unit, and then president of Local 600, which at that time had like 26,000 members, um, and then the next, and then to regional director, and then to vice president, and then to president. So I had this great opportunity to work at every level of the union and really cherish uh, my time in the union. I loved it, loved it at every position. And, uh, always, The members were always so generous. We were really active, whether it was mine workers and struggles or steel workers or teamsters. We had this great history of always going to battle for other for other workers. And then we were very active in in uh, South Africa. Owen Bieber was the president at that time and he was very outspoken on apartheid. He went down there himself personally a couple of times. Moses Mayakiso, who was the president of the auto workers and metal workers down there I think he only survived because Owen went and made Owen went personally down there to intervene to stop his execution. Mm. So that and so we would have workers from South Africa come and visit our you know everybody who came to Detroit wanted to see the Rouge wanted to visit the Rouge. So we had this great opportunity to expose our members to union leaders in the struggle from different parts of the world. And members were always 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 tremendously supportive. I remember when Nelson Mandela got released from prison and was going to come to the United States, he insisted that it be to visit the auto workers and to visit plants in Detroit because of all the tremendous support he had had over the years from the UAW. And that was really, really special. He came to our local union. He came and visited probably the same plant you worked in. He, he If you worked in the... I don't know if you worked in the... Rouge, you worked I worked in Dearborn. Detroit. Yeah, yeah. So that was... A, he. So he... Went and visited the Dearborn Assembly Plant. Yeah, and was in his first trip to the United States after he was released. Well, I would have loved to have met him, but not at the Dearborn Plant as a similar person. Maybe. Oh man, you can imagine how moving it was for all the workers there. I can only imagine. Listen, we've got to take our first break. 
time. Sure. We'll be right back, everybody. We're going to talk about capital versus labor. Uh, we're going to talk about the UAW and all of the things that has been done nationally and international. Please don't touch the dial. We'll be right back after the weather and the news. 1450 WOL. You know, information is power, and that's why the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about cooperatives and the benefits of cooperatives. So that if you use that information, if you take the information that you get from this show and and use the information, you could probably either start a cooperative or join a cooperative and get the power. You, you've talked about starting 1934, the unions, up through your, your history. I guess you didn't start in 1934. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Vietnam War, I really like your quote, uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So if you have management on one hand, if they have all of the power, then they can you know, get corrupt, absolutely. But then you have the union, the labor, and and the management management board offsetting each other, so that you can have non-corruption. I guess is what I would say is that you don't right. end up getting uh, corrupt, and you also get the employees to where they have a say and can live and make a decent living. So is that why you liked uh, your your experience in the union? You help a lot of people. Yeah, I, I think that um, because of the really positive role that a strong union movement plays in the overall democracy in the country, you know, if, um, if you look at charts in terms of pay, paid time off, holidays, vacations, health care benefits, pensions, as the percent of unions in rows, the percent of people in society in, in the U.S., who had those benefits rose in, in a direct parallel. So the middle class was really built by and through collective bargaining. And then when unions began to lose power and less workers were covered in collective bargaining, you see a downward trend for, I would argue, all the metrics of social justice, whether it's you know level of education, money put in education, cost of college, infrastructure, uh, building the money, when, when unions are strong, they're not only a voice for their own members, they're a voice for working families throughout society. And they support things like Social Security and, and minimum wage and workers' compensation. And so I think for a democratic society, it's very, very important you have strong unions. I also believe that the more you can build labor management cooperation, one of the reasons I believe so strongly in worker cooperatives is I, you know, I've experienced it firsthand. When workers have a real voice in how the assembly line runs, how a stamping plant or an engine plant runs, they make constant improvements, continuous improvements. And when they feel empowered and know that their voices can be heard and their suggestions are going to be heard, uh, it really motivates them. And so the tremendous success of Ford and General Motors and Chrysler since the bankruptcies has really been because of this tremendously strong commitment to working together to collaboration. You know, members take very, very seriously that they want their the vehicles they produce that they make to be the highest quality, and they want a reputation for GM workers or Ford workers or Chrysler workers all or UAW members. They want the public to know that they're absolutely committed to give that public the best value for the vehicle that they purchase. 
And, you know, that's, you know, light years of difference from 30 or 40 years ago. And so sometimes crisis produces some pretty amazing results. And I think in the auto industry, it woke both management and labor up to, hey, we can't be confrontational. You know, we're going to have our differences, but we're going to always look for creative solutions that help make a better product, help the company be profitable, and then help workers make sure that they, they're getting their fair share of the success of the company. You just said a whole lot, and I, I like what you're saying, and that's the reason I like cooperatives, and that's the reason that we started this show to try to get people more knowledge about co-ops because it does exactly what you just said. But before we get into this, into the cooperative and this, this sort of work, how does unions and co-ops uh, merge or at, at what level and how that might happen, I want to talk about capital versus labor. I've talked about it on this program. I've looked at it. Somebody had a billion dollars at the billionaires at the Forbes 100. They all have a billion or more with Bill Gates having $80 billion uh, net worth, that if you look, if you have a billion dollars and you can invest that at 10% return, that's $100 million a year without even having to right. wake up. Right, right. And even if you got 4% in the, the article and Forbes talked about that most billionaires can at least get 4%. And if you got 4%, that's $40 million a year. I kind of think that all of us or any of us could live off of $40 million a year. Matter of fact, I would think it would be a little bit surplus. But it looks like those that have money, particularly those that have inherited money, are trying to either get more or keep what they have and get more. And they try to get the taxes and buy the politicians so that they uh, cannot pay as much in taxes on a percentage basis. I think they don't pay their fair share by any stretch. So there's always been this sort of fight, if you will, between the pie of the U.S only produces so much income. And so if the people with the money are getting a bigger share of it, I think they're getting like 57% of all new income these billionaires and millionaires are getting. And that only leaves, my math is right, 43% for the labor. And it's sort of like this constant struggle. And it's always sort of like been there. And it seemed like the folks with the money are winning because of they can buy the politicians to make the laws that give them the the benefit, if you will. What do you think about that, and how does that fit with unions, and is that what you well, think? Well, really? I think what you're describing is absolutely accurate. I don't know if you've read Bob Reich's new book, Capitalism for Everyone, you know, how do you save capitalism? Uh, but no. it, it, to me, it, it is all about power. When workers don't have any power, you have situations like within the Rouge before the UAW is there, where you don't have any dignity, you can be fired at a whim at any point. And, but then when workers joined together and, and gave each other the collective power of, of their solidarity and sticking together, they bargained really great contracts. The company still stayed you know, profitable. We're very, very profitable for many years and are, again, very profitable. So what, if, if you want to maintain democracy and you want to maintain the middle class, you've got to have strong unions, and you've got to have more and more workers covered by collective bargaining. Um, and I think that a lot of progressive academics, a lot of progressive politicians, political leaders, forgot about the tremendous foundational support of workers having the right to be in a union, having a right to collective bargaining. Nowhere in the world do corporations, well, it's, I guess nowhere in the developed world, do corporations fight unions as viciously as they do in the U.S. 
the intent of the law is not the impact of the law. But today in the U.S., you don't really have a free democratic right to say you want to be in a union. Every time there's a campaign, usually it's the employer uh, threatens that they'll close the facility or they'll move, which you're not going to do. They have, you know, in like auto plants, they've got like billions of dollars of investment, a fixed cost that they're not going to move. But they make that threat. And, and so workers who want a union say, well, I can't take that risk for my family that they would close down and move to Mexico or close down and move somewhere else. So we really want to, to me, if you, if you want to rebuild the middle class, you want to rebuild our democracy, uh, it's really important that the foundation that you start with giving workers an unfettered right without interference from the employer to join a union or not. You know, I think it should be their free choice. But I think that today we need to recognize there is not a free choice for workers with the kind of, really, I would call them terrorist campaigns that the employers run to stop workers from joining together. The firing of, of key leaders, the isolation of key leaders, moving them to off shifts, moving them to isolated areas in the facility, all the things that the threats that are made, the threats to, you know, people's families that are made, an organizing drive that's pretty outrageous. And I know most of America isn't aware of how difficult these campaigns are and how hard it is for workers to get a collective voice under the application of the law in the U.S. And even though, you know, President Obama's NLRB has made a number of favorable decisions, but we really need significant structural change in labor law to really give workers the right without interference from their employer as to whether or not they want to be in unions. Why do you think that it's fought so hard here in the U.S. versus other places, other developing countries? Well, it, it, it is about this power question, this greed question. The employers know that they can make more money. The owners know they'll make more money. They don't have to share as much of the success if workers don't have a union. They know that if a union's in there, they're going to have work rules that protect the workers ergonomically, protect the workers health and safety-wise, protect the workers' right uh, to bid to different jobs, and they just don't have unilateral right to fire workers or to reassign workers. There's got to be rules of fairness. And actually, what's really ironic about it is when you have good unions and good management, you get far higher productivity than you do in non-union facilities uh, and higher quality and um, much, much more collaboration. You know, we're going to talk more about good unions and good management, and we get more into the cooperatives. So we're going to come back and talk more about that. I also want to see if we can talk a little bit about Flint, Michigan. I don't know if there was, I assume some workers from Flint worked in some of the plants that you talked about. I don't know if there was ever a plant in Flint, Michigan. but Oh, yeah, there are a bunch of plants in Flint, Michigan. So Big, big gym center of of production for many years is greatly reduced now, but there are still important plants, engine plants, truck plants, assembly plants in, in Flint. All right, we'll be right back. We're taking our second break, and uh, we'll be right back with Mr. King. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I was going to ask you if you were in relationship with Martin Luther King, but we'll come back as soon as the <laughs> break is over. Please don't touch that down. 1450 WOL. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, this is Everything Cooperative. 
We have Mr. Bob King, who is President Emeritus of United Auto Workers on the line with us this morning. And, you know, National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. The NCB's customers are cooperatives, such as grocery wholesale cooperatives, purchasing cooperatives, or housing cooperatives. Other customers share in the spirit of cooperatives driven by democratic organizing principles. They may be Alaskan or Native American enterprises, which by their very nature are member-run and member-owned. Others may be community health centers or charter schools driven entirely by the community needs. What they all have in common is a single fundamental principle that they have joined together cooperatively to meet personal, social, and or business needs. And that's the reason unions come together, to work cooperatively to meet personal, social, and business needs. So, Bob, you you mentioned twice so far about the similarity, if you will, of co-ops and unions and why you like co-ops and why you like unions. Can you tell us how you got into this cooperative piece? I I get where you came up in unions. How did you get into co-ops? So, probably where I really, I'd read a little bit about them. I knew about them, was sympathetic towards them. But probably the person who first put it into concrete to say, how can we do more in cooperatives was probably 15 or 20 years ago. Deb Olson, who's an attorney in Detroit, who's been a strong advocate for cooperatives for many, many years, uh, was probably the first person who had a direct conversation with me about how could we look more at having unions play a more active role in cooperatives. And so we had some general discussions, but no particular opportunities came up, or maybe at that point I wasn't wise enough to realize that maybe some of the opportunities might have been to convert some existing companies into cooperatives. And then when I retired, both the steel workers, Leo Girard, had played a really key role in bringing Mondragon here with Michael Peck, uh, who's an amazing person who you know well, mm-hmm. asked me to be on the advisory board for the One Worker, One Vote. So I agreed to do that, and then I agreed to be on the advisory board of CB2BE, which is an organization here in Detroit to promote cooperatives in the city of Detroit. So working more actively with both those organizations now to try to figure out how can we expand uh, worker cooperatives. Because they, they do, you know, one of my other great experiences I got for four years to serve on the supervisory board of a German company. Uh, Opal, which is a GM subsidiary, and to see how that law really, how the German code of termination law really requires collaboration. So what I think worker cooperatives do, smart union management contracts do, or laws like worker code of termination do, is that they really bring people together to get used the full talents of every individual, and we're all blessed with different talents, and the only way we achieve optimum results is if we work together, because you're going to have qualities that I don't have, you're going to have insights that I don't have, and vice versa. And so I'm very excited about and believe so deeply in workers having the strongest possible voice to help make the company or the organization they're working for more successful. Uh, and I've seen, you know, the results of that. I've seen it in assembly plants. I've seen it, you know, in parts supplier plants, and I've seen it in uh, big U.S. auto companies. That when there is really a path for workers to have a full voice, everybody benefits. So that's why, you know, I'm very interested in seeing how can we expand worker cooperatives because I think they make community stronger. Also, 
And also, how do we expand that more workers get to have the value and benefit of collective bargaining? You know, I, I, I like listening to you talk. I both learn from listening to you, but I also you're saying the kinds of things that, that I believe in. You, you talked earlier about good unions and good management produce a better product. I have said on this program that a good governance in a co-op and good management produce successful businesses. And I have defined good as having where people have knowledge and integrity, right. uh, where integrity is the most important one, and that is that they follow their bylaws and their rules and follow the, the principles of, of a cooperative. Uh, and if they do that, they'd be highly successful, creating much more product and better product, usually at a lower price. How can you lose at this? It's also amazing to me if people that, that are fighting the unions understood that, then they wouldn't have this big fight that you've been talking about. Right. Get more productivity with possibly less work, therefore more profit. Right. Uh, okay. So it's our job to try to teach and where we can't teach, try to get the laws in place that would allow people to have the experience that you're talking about here. No, I think it's absolutely right. And, and you know, the, you know, if you look around the world in terms of developed countries it, over the last 30 years, it's hard to match Germany's success. I think a critical component that members of both Volkswagen and Opel management that I've dealt with, German management I've dealt with, clearly credit uh, the co-determination system for being a major component in their in their continued success. So are you saying that Volkswagen and Mercedes, the employees, the laborers, have this voice that can help the management? Yeah, and, and, and it, you know, um, I would say that where it has worked the best, and this kind of maybe sounds contrary because of the recent, you know, problems at Volkswagen and the false testing and emission controls, but overall, labor management worked extremely well in Volkswagen. When they had difficult times, they worked together and they figured out how to sit a lane and people off. They reduced everybody's hours a much more community-minded way to handle downturns. And they've been really tremendously successful globally because of the, the uh, collaboration. And workers having a full voice. There are equal number of labor representatives and management representatives on their board directors. They call them supervisory boards. We don't have anything like that in the U.S. And I think that that's one reason why they've outperformed us for a number of years. That would be a nice public relations spot or advertising to get that across. Because it's, it's kind of like, why does Mercedes or Volkswagen? I mean, they just out, I've, I've owned both, uh, right. and they, they just have outperformed most U.S. Now, it seems like Ford and Chevy are coming up most recently, but the, over the years, um, they have not performed as well. But well, uh, it's interesting, though. It's, you know, it's, it's an evolutionary process, but really, when we were studying the co-determination, one of the things that kind of light bulb went off. They have co-determination by law in Germany, where in the U.S. At, at Ford and General Motors and Chrysler, you have co-determination by contract. So you've got like 14 different joint programs on quality and efficiency and production standards and ergonomics and training, all these different areas that you, that we've set up by contract, joint ownership and joint decision-making. You have a union co-chair and a company co-chair over each of these joint areas. 
Uh, they work together collaboratively every day to make sure you get the uh, highest quality product. In Ford plants, they've put uh, quality operating specialists in every plant trained by a joint program to make sure that every day the focus stays on quality the way that it should. And those are, you know, UAW members that have been trained or in those positions. So you can achieve the same result, I believe, my experience is by bargaining for it. I think it's really important that, you know, to me, it's even more important than wages and benefits in a way because in the end, you'll get higher wages and benefits if you bargain for really collaborative management systems where everybody is committed to the success of the, of the company and everybody works together and you have a system to make sure the success is shared by everybody. You know, when uh, I met you in Cincinnati at their union cooperative uh, workshop this past summer, and I was had one question going there is if a worker cooperative for everybody out there is when the business, it can be any business you can think of, is owned and controlled by the workers, by the employees. So if you had the business owned and controlled by the employees, I didn't see a need for a union. Mm-hmm. And I've had a couple of people on the program, Michael, Be- Peck, Michael Peck. Peck. Yeah. Peck was one, and they were telling me that the reason, well, let me ask you. Why is there a need for a union when the workers own and control the business? Because you need a system of operating in the plants. You need a system for fair promotions. You need a system for due process. If, if there are issues of discipline, you, you want a formal process for ideas or for uh, conflict resolution. And unions and collective bargaining agreements provide a structure that allows more of the time and focus to be on the producing the highest quality product. And then, then when there are grievances or issues, you've got a system for dealing with those. Uh, and so I, I think that having both a collective bargaining agreement and the worker ownership, one worker, one vote, provides for a system that will produce the most positive results. Because talking to people who've been in cooperatives, you know, if you're really small and cooperative, it's a different story. But if, you know, you grow to a large size, having systems like a collective bargaining agreement that channel people's energy in the, in the right way and when there are problems, which, which there are always going to be if there are human beings involved, right? There are always going to be some personality conflicts. There are always going to be some differences of opinion. And having a fair system that workers know is fair and that they can read the contract and say what their rights are, what their rights aren't, what they're committed to, what they're not, I think helps produce better relationships in the long run and better results in the long run. Say where two or more are gathered, there's conflict. (laughs) Yeah, right. I even have some (laughs) I may have conflicts within myself sometimes even, but (laughs) try a marriage. And one of the problems I found with marriage is only two people, and it's awful hard to have a democracy when there's only two people. (laughs) You better learn how to solve problems (laughs) together. Phil Amadon and Michael Peck are the two people that have been on the show since that Cincinnati piece. And what Phil, what I took away, he didn't say this exactly. So I'm going to combine what you've said. He said when you have human beings that there are going to be problems like what you just said. But he said also this greed and power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So if you have management in uh, and they get more and more and more and more power, 
or in, as I've seen in housing co-ops, that's what I do for a full-time job, Bob, is I manage condos and co-ops and HOAs, but I've seen where board members would get a lot of power, particularly if they're in a long time, and then they'll do whatever they want to do. So this absolute power corrupts absolutely. So he said, at least I took away from the conversation with Phil, is that you need checks and balances. And right. the union provides those checks and balances because if you if the worker cannot get it up through management, then they can get their voices heard through the union, which I, I think it's a great way. That's why we set up three three branches of government in the U.S., right? Checks yeah. and balances. In yeah. human nature, you need checks and balances. We all do. Particularly with greed. Greed isn't by itself isn't necessarily bad, but when you try to take advantage of people to get more for self, and even sometimes, right. like I said, if there's no integrity, you would do things either outside of the law of the land or you do do things outside of the bylaws or your management agreement and house rules or whatever. You do things to help your your mom, your sister, your brother that you can't do for everybody else. And eventually the organization goes down. It's been my right. experience with lack of integrity. That's my experience too. So we're going to come back and talk about Flint. We're going to take our last <laughs> break. The hour goes by real fast, particularly when yeah. we're having fun. Um, you did mention Mondragon, so I want to say this. Mondragon is uh, about 70,000 people working in a, over 100 worker cooperatives in Spain, and it was a worn, torn, poverty-stricken area, and now is very vibrant and prosperous with these cooperatives, and that's what bringing their policies and procedures over to help us so we can create them here. We'll be right back. 1450 WOL. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks coming back to you with Everything Cooperative. And we have Mr. Bob King, uh, President Emeritus for the UAW. I mentioned earlier that the NCBA is having their 100th anniversary this year. They started in 1916. Well, this year, this month of January, they've talked about history as their main theme. Next month is civil rights. UAW did a lot for African Americans and was in the civil rights, uh, supported civil rights, and also uh, supported politicians that helped labor or you thought maybe late. How did, how did you choose which politicians to support? How did you do that? I think always based on values and based on whether they were supportive workers' rights to collective bargaining, whether they believed in an uh, economy and society that people shared in the success of the companies or the success of the society. So I think it's always based on values. There's a very well-developed system in the UAW where members are part of interviewing candidates for offices, people from that local area sit down and ask them about issues like maybe beyond this trans-specific partnership, whether they be opposed to it because it can be so detrimental for workers in America, whether they support it, whether they support pensions and worker compensation and fair, you know, fair standards for workers, whether they support a really strong public school system with sufficient funding that teachers are given class sizes that they can really have a positive impact on kids. So, uh, you know, there are always a number of areas about working families and workers' rights that we interview candidates on and then based on their responses and those questions, then we does the workers do a vote internally to decide which one after they've talked to them? The workers have a chance to sign up to be on these interview committees. 
and then it goes to a larger body of people who are on their political action committees in, in the in the local unions, then are sent as delegates to a larger meeting that then votes. So representatives of the workers are not they're not referendum votes usually on um on making endorsements. Sometimes in really you know, big things like the presidential race there will be a poll done of members or there will be a some kind of process set up so members can voice their opinions on it. But generally, most uh, endorsements come through this process of interviews and then the representatives of the workers attending a large meeting and voting to endorse or not to endorse candidates. Well, several reasons I asked the question. One is I would like to see where cooperatives would maybe go through some similar kind of process Mm-hmm. to look at because it's all the similar values. The cooperatives have values and right. principles. And then like honesty and transparency and self-help and accountability uh, are some of the values. And then the kinds of things you've talked about earlier is democracy, uh, but open membership, not related to race or religion. Uh, they also have put in some money. And if there's profits made, they get some money back. And that's a way of building both financial wealth. Uh, and then there's education, this whole thing of knowledge. Uh, and that's, that was my first attraction to co-ops was seeing how everyday people would get knowledge how to run a business through right. managing housing co-ops, affordable housing co-ops. So when when do you think UAW would decide which one of the candidates are running now, whether they're going to go for Hillary or Bernie or Donald Trump or Cruz? Or- you know, every presidential race, it seems like it's been handled somewhat differently, uh, depending on the candidates involved. I think that right now the UAW has not made any endorsement. I don't know if they will even make an endorsement during the primary. They may wait and try to be part of the force that brings everybody back together after the primary contest is over, and whether it's Hillary or whether it's Bernie, whoever, for the Democrats, then try to reunite everybody to make a big push for what I think is a, you know, really critically important election. I think if you end up with any of the Republican candidates, you're headed down a path that really people believe in fascism. They don't believe in worker rights. They don't believe. I mean, every day Republicans are trying to take away from more people the right to vote, Uh, making voter registration harder, you know, these photo IDs. There have been no you know, shown cases of corruption in elections, but they keep using it. Well, we're doing this to stop. They're not doing it to stop corruption. They're doing it to stop people from voting. Yeah. And and, and then you mentioned Flint. That is a disastrous result of a loss of democracy in Michigan. And, you know, it was partially because of the problems that the auto industry was in and that, you know, so many jobs were lost in Ford and General Motors and Chrysler were based in Michigan, so that weakened the power of unions in Michigan and then all the direct attacks by Republicans on workers' rights to collective bargaining really has taken a toll. And and because of lack of democracy and lack of transparency, the people of Michigan voted no emergency manager. They did a ballot initiative. They voted down. So the Republicans used legislative trickery to To pass a new law, the same as the old one, and put a appropriation uh, attachment to it, so it couldn't be another ballot initiative, couldn't take it down. I mean, they've shown over and over and over again a total lack of respect for what voters want. We just got to wait 
people, but they, you know, they're successful because people get frustrated. They quit voting rather than realize, well, heck, I got to fight harder to wrest power away from these people who don't want me to have a middle class standard of living, don't want me to have a pension, don't want me to have health care. Rather than getting discouraged, we've got to somehow energize people to realize if they do come together, they can make a better life for themselves. But if they stay home and don't vote, then they're part of the problem rather than being part of the solution. And the problem they end up facing is they'll get the brunt of the the part of the problem that hurts themselves when their kids get sick or right. they have poor kids and adults when you're bathing in, in this uh, water. Um, yeah, this contaminated toxic water. It's just outrageous. I mean, it's really criminal. And then for this governor... To say, oh, I'm sorry, but then blame everybody else. I mean, and there's more and more documentation. He's known about it. I was at a, a rally in Flint when he was running for re-election the governor, and there was maybe 100, 150 people there, but there were probably 20 signs up uh, protesting the water in Flint and how bad it was. So for him to say he wasn't aware, I was there. I watched him walk by all those signs. He's known about this. And for him to be so dishonest and disingenuous and lie to people, to me, uh, it's outrageous. I think there should be criminal responsibility. They have killed people through Legionnaire's disease that's connected to this toxic water. They've damaged kids for life. I mean, this is just so morally outrageous. And it's because they've limited democracy in Michigan. In five elections in a row, Democrats have gotten more votes for the Michigan House of Representatives and never had a majority because of the way districts are gerrymandered. And the Senate, Michigan Senate, is worse than the Michigan House. You know, we've got to fight to get our democracy back. And I was wondering, like, how to take this the Cincinnati food hub that they have that we went out right. and and took a look at it, how to get that in Flint. They said there's no no, no grocery store. So I said, like, how do you right. create a, a co-op, either employee-owned co-op, a worker cooperative, or right. a consumer cooperative where the people that buy in that grocery store would own the business right. and maybe right. volunteer in that business to, to get a a uh, food hub going in, in Flint right away. And then it's like maybe instead of like changing out the pipes, how to get some new housing there. Say it again, maybe rather than changing the pipes, what? Get some new housing. Yeah. But, well, but if you don't change it, you have to change the pipes because new housing, if they don't change the pipes, you're still going to have that bad water. Yeah, well, I was thinking new pipes to the new housing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> new, new pipes to the new housing. But really, the system, they have to redo the piping in the whole system. When I looked at some of those housing, it looked at they were small and worth right, $10,000, right. dollars $30,000. No, they, they certainly need better affordable housing, too. Yeah, but the the pipes, in my opinion, everything I understand, the pipes absolutely have to be changed. And it, you know, Rachel Maddow had a program last night. I saw it. Yeah, got all of this money in this rainy day fund. <sighs> what more important reason could you spend that money immediately? One point two billion. Yeah, they should be digging up that system right today using that emergency fund. He called it an emergency in October. It's a human emergency in the U.S. November, December, January, almost February. Four months he's done nothing when he called it an emergency. And like you said, he knew right. about it much longer than that. Listen, the time goes by quickly. We've got about a minute left to go. 
Okay. So how would you like to, what message would you like to leave the audience with? Well, it's just that it is always about power, that we have to build power for working people, and we have to support workers in being part of collective bargaining agreements, having a right to union representation. If we want to spread cooperatives, if we want legislation that will support cooperatives, support public housing, support food, national health care, you need a strong labor movement. You need strong unions to help build that infrastructure to be able to to do the things for justice, for social justice, for human justice that we need to do in this country. You know, I have a plug-in for when I first heard about this union co-ops, I was thinking about the Fords and the IBMs becoming owned by the, the workers. But also, the right around here in D.C., they have a lot of research facilities that are government, right. sort of quasi-government, they become union. There's a lot that we can do. Thank you so very much, Bob. Thank it's you, an Bernie. absolute pleasure. And I'll be looking Thank to talk to you great. in the future, and we'll see how we can get this done. Thank okay, you. great. Thank you. Everybody, I'll see you next week when we're talking about civil rights. The month February is Black History Month, and that's right in line with NCBA's 100th anniversary. Have a great one. Take care. 1450 WOL.